bulletin. We will have a PowerPoint going behind me. Those of you that are joining us online, you can follow along and take notes. And if you have the church app, you can take notes right in the church app. The sermon outline is already there. Well, our first major point this morning is it all points to Jesus. Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of heaven and what life looks like following him as Lord, as king, as master, as ruler. And as he has been involved in his ministry, he has certainly come into conflict with many of the teachings and traditions of the religious leaders of his day. And this becomes clearer as the gospel unfolds. And what was the main problem? Well, over the centuries since the law had been given, the Jewish religious leaders added several layers of interpretation and application to their understanding of the law. And with each new series of interpretations and applications, there have come yet another series of applications to in interpret and apply the previous layer of interpretation. So if you start out with the law like a box, thou shalt not covet, then they would begin to give explanations on what it means to not covet and put another fence, as it were, around the law. And then they didn't want people approaching the fence that was around the law, so they would put another layer of interpretations and applications. And over time, layer after layer was added to what the law originally said. And Jesus would come and cut through all the layers and get to the core and heart of the law and what its true intention and meaning was. And so there was conflict then between the religious leaders and the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a question on the one hand of power and control, and it was a question on the other of just truth and life. But Jesus makes it clear that he keeps the whole Bible. For he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. As we've said in his own teaching, he cuts through those layers to get to the core of the law, its true intention, its true meaning. But the result would be conflict, as the religious leaders would object to the interpretation and meaning that Jesus gave because his teachings contradicted theirs. They thought he was doing away with the law itself when what he was doing away with was their interpretation of the law. And so as they thought he's violating our rules and our regulations, they said he has come to get rid of the law altogether. And so he starts out in saying, I have not come to abolish the law. He clearly denies the original accusation. In your knowledge of the Gospels, you know that often the leaders and rulers accuse Jesus of being a lawbreaker, of not having a common or a proper reverence for the Old Testament, of not keeping proper separation with the sinners of this world. What is clear and becomes clear over time is that they had no idea with whom they were dealing. Jesus will make it clear again and again that though he violated their traditional customs and interpretations of the law and all of their extra explanations he was not violating the law itself no he says that he was to come to be the fulfillment of all that is in the new testament of what the old testament actually teaches and as we move on in our study in the gospel according to matthew in chapter five he's going to give six examples of what they taught the religious leaders but what he gives as the right interpretation and intent of the law. We need Jesus to help us to understand the word of God today. All of us 
need to face the reality that in our weakness and our limitations, we come with our minds clouded by sin, and we receive and accept things from our own culture and surroundings and experiences and religious leaders that we have chosen to listen to, but we need to examine all of that in light of who Jesus is and what he has come to do so that Jesus remains the true interpreter of his scriptures. And so the challenge, as it was to the scribes and Pharisees of their day, is to us today. Do we see that Jesus is the true and better? And then fill in the blank, whatever comes, the true and better. That he is the one who wants to show us the true interpretation of Scripture. And he has said he has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Well, why did the law come? And there are several reasons. You see the first one on your screen. Now, we're going to go through this quite quickly this morning. I'm warning you ahead of time. If you're trying to take notes, you're going to get frustrated because I'm going to speak faster than your notes. But here's the deal. As we move through the gospel, we're going to keep bringing these ideas back. Okay, so today is just an introduction, but I'm going to give you four quick points of the purpose of the law. First, the law points out our sin and our need for salvation. Secondly, the law restrains evil and wrongdoing by telling us what is right and what is wrong. Third, the law reveals what is pleasing to God. It is always to be seen as a good and holy thing. And fourth, the law points us to Jesus. He did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. As he starts out this statement, do not think that. I've come to do that. He's making it very clear. He is not setting aside what God had revealed beforehand. He is fulfilling it. He is the purpose of it. He is the intent of it. He is the goal of it. The word for abolish means to destroy or to loosen. Oh, now you can hear some of the accusations that the scribes and Pharisees threw at Jesus. They thought he was loosening the law. He wanted to destroy the law. And this would not be the last time that they would accuse him of trying to destroy something. Later on in his trial, they will say he's come to destroy the temple. But like he did, he does then, uh, he did then, and what he will do now, Jesus is saying, I'm not destroying the things of God. I'm giving them their proper meaning and application. Now, the law itself, strictly speaking, would refer just to those first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And the prophets, strictly speaking, would refer to those books that we know as the prophets, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, the minor prophets, Hosea, Malachi, Zephaniah, etc. But when they're put together, the law and the prophets, it became shorthand for understanding the whole Old Testament. That Jesus came to fulfill the whole of the Old Testament. And there's something behind this expression, I have come. That doesn't just mean I showed up. It doesn't just mean that it was a, an accident. There's the idea of divine intentionality. For over and over, Jesus says in the Gospels, I have come that. And it's always something related to fulfilling the purposes of God, the law of God, the, uh, showing the attributes of God. As one commentator says, this statement points to a consciousness of mission. Jesus knew that he had a special place and a special function. Think of the one who was saying, I have come. We're introduced to him in chapter 1 as the Emmanuel, God with us. We're introduced to the one who is the Savior, Jesus, who will save his people from their sins. He is the one that is coming to keep the whole Bible, to fulfill it, but also to help us understand what fulfillment means. 
I have not come, Jesus said, to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To abolish them is to do away with them, but Jesus will fulfill them. So what does that mean? So I want to point out a few things. First, for Jesus to fulfill the Old Testament means that he is the one to whom it all points. The shadows, the prophecies, the predictions, the promises, the types. Jesus is the one to whom it all points. And oh, how we wish we could have been with him on the road to Emmaus when he opened up the scriptures and showed them how all parts of the scriptures were fulfilled in him. And what an amazing Bible study that would have been. But secondly, for Jesus to fulfill the law, he clearly tells us he came to fulfill all righteousness. Chapter 3, verse 15. He came to do all that the law commanded to satisfy the requirements of the law. Now think about what that means. There are 613 specific commandments in the law. Divided into the moral law, the ceremonial law, the sacrificial law. Some of them are positive. Some of them are negative. Do not do. Some of them are positive. You must do. 613 specific commandments. In his perfectly obedient and righteous life, Jesus fulfilled every one. Every offering, every requirement, every sacrifice, every prayer, every goal and intention of the law. Over the course of his entire human life, every effort, every step, every action, every word, every intention of his heart was in perfect harmony with the law of God and fulfilling it. When we say that Jesus is our righteousness. Rejoice, my friends, in what that means. That he fulfilled all of that for us so that we would be declared not guilty in the sight of God. He brings the law to its intended desires and goals. Just thus Paul can say in the book of Romans, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He lived and died so that those he came to save would be called and forgiven and give eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. So thirdly, for him to fulfill the law and the prophets means that he would be the ultimate of what the prophets are referring to, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king. And all of those different roles that they had, he would be the ultimate fulfillment of it. Forgiveness of sins, judgment and righteousness, deliverance from all evil, rescue from sin and destruction, safety, security, provision, protection, righteousness, mercy. All of those things he would be the fulfillment of when he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And then fourthly and lastly, not only did Jesus accomplish all that the law required, he also clarifies what the law intended. He embodied all of the predictions and promises that were made. He fulfills the patterns given by the law and the prophets. It all points back to him. And so it is good for us to sing, Amen, amen, from beginning to end. Christ the story, his the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Because it all points to Jesus. Secondly, it will all be done. It will all be done. He says, for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. He will fulfill the scriptures, he says, to the last point. 
as we have said, not only does the law point forward to Jesus, but he is the one who fulfills the law and gives them their proper understanding. And we've already looked at how the fact that over centuries they kept adding things because they didn't have a full understanding of the intent and purpose of the law. But we have a greater privilege today because indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, at the moment that we believe, having the full revelation of God for all that we need to know about God and about salvation, we are able to have a greater understanding of what the law intended. And yet, we still must be diligent in understanding how that all works together. But what a privilege we have on this side of the cross to have the author of the book residing within us, indwelling us, of which we are his temple and how we can encounter God through Christ in his presence. But Jesus says, truly, I say to you, the word there is literally amen, truly. Behind it is the word amen, both in the Aramaic and in the Hebrew and even in the Greek. What does it mean to say amen? It means to say such a thing is true. Now, we often put the word amen at the end of our prayers after we've prayed, after we've offered up our thanksgiving and our requests, and, and we want to give praise to God, we say amen. But Jesus often starts it with amen, saying, what I'm going to say is true. He wants, us to, he wants to get our attention. He wants us to listen to what he is saying. And so he says, amen, I say to you. And what we're going to notice as we move through the rest of Matthew chapter 5 is, we don't find Jesus saying things like, thus says the Lord. He will say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He's going to speak with divine authority. He's going to speak, as it were, in the place of God. And if he's not God, then he is worthy of punishment. But he will show that he indeed is God over and over again. But what does he say here? Amen, I say to you, not a dot. Not an iota will pass away until all is accomplished. The iota is the smallest letter. The dot is the smallest mark of a pen. It's almost as if you're writing something and the pen slips just a little bit. He's saying all of it to the littlest part where every I will be dotted and every T crossed in the law, they will be accomplished. And they will be, they will last until earth and heaven pass away when the purpose of them has been fulfill the purpose of the law now we look at it today and we say but we do understand that some aspects of the law have been fulfilled and accomplished we met at a table this morning and ate bread and drank juice we didn't bring a goat or a bull down the aisle we didn't have a priest with vestments we didn't have an altar that we sacrificed the blood and poured it out we didn't light the candles of incense there are certain things that we understand that have been accomplished and fulfilled the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the sacrificial law. He's also the fulfillment of much of the ceremonial law. But the principles behind them are still in play, as is the moral law of what we should do and what we should not do as a redeemed people to show that we, in fact, are a redeemed people. And Jesus is saying all of this will be fulfilled, the big things and the last to the last point, it will all be fulfilled, and to the last day, until all is accomplished, he says. So, like we said, there is a sense where much of the law has been fulfilled, and that it led us to Christ, and that it causes us to find our purpose, our identity, our meaning, our life itself in Christ. 
He's the fulfillment of the law. Yet in another sense, we are still commanded to fulfill the law. Because the intents and purposes of the law remain until all has been accomplished. And so we see places in the New Testament and in the Old where we are commanded to fulfill the law. And under the power of God, the Holy Spirit, we are able to do so. And let's look at some testimonies then from the Word of God. Psalm 119, 97 and 98 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. You come to the word of God in the morning, my friends, and open and say, oh God, I love your word. Do we believe what Jesus said when he said we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God? That the word of God is our very life. The Apostle John, writing towards the end of his life, in the first letter to the churches, said, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. You ever notice that? It says our, his commandments are not burdensome. Why are they not burdensome? Because we no longer have the first husband of the law that puts the rigged list on us with no mercy and no grace. But as the bride of Christ, we now have a bridegroom who loves us, who gave himself for us, who cherishes us. And we want to obey him because we love him. His laws are not burdensome. But they're part of our worship. His commandments are not burdensome for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. It was Jesus himself who said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The scripture cannot be broken. In recent days, over the past couple of decades, there's been a challenge and a struggle and a fight against what we mean when we say the Bible is the word of God. And unfortunately, there are many even within the church who have given up on a high view of the word of God. And if we don't have a high view of the word of God, how can we know what God says? And how can we live it out? And so what happens is an example after example where people kick away one thing about the word of God, they eventually kick away something else and something else. And pretty soon tradition and culture has overtaken them. And they're off far away from the Lord. And so at this point this morning, I want to emphasize and remind us, what do we believe here as the Evangelical Free Church of Oroville about the Word of God? And so I just want to read from our statement of faith. It is good for us to reaffirm what it is that we believe. Because if we have the Word of God that has been given to us, and we are to obey it, and we are to love it, and we are to meditate upon it, and we are to share it, why do we have? do those things well our statement of faith says that we believe that god has spoken in the scriptures both old and new testament through the words of human authors as the verbally inspired word of god the bible is without error in the original writings the complete revelation of his will for salvation and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, the word of God is to be believed in all it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. Now the 
a seminary professor in me, the Bible teacher in me at this point sees about 15 sermons just getting ready. That's what we'll say that we won't do that this morning, but it's the word of God and nothing else. The word of God that is sufficient for salvation, that is sufficient for our authority, that we must read it, study it, obey it, love it, share it with others around us. Because in theological terms, we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the scriptures. Now stay with me here. Verbal means the words themselves, not just the ideas. It's not like a poet who just has his own ideas and he puts them out there. These were the, the very words that God gave through his Holy Spirit, and plenary means fullness, all the words. We believe that all of this book, which is a library of 66 individual books, is inspired, given as a gift by God the Holy Spirit, and Jesus said, I will fulfill it all. So we affirm then what, what Paul means in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Jesus says he has come to fulfill the whole Bible, and it will all be done. Therefore, teach and obey the law. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So what is he saying here? Don't worry, we haven't got to the end yet. There's still some application points we have to get to on what this all means. But we need to take it as it's given. And he says, don't relax and mislead. The law itself is a good thing from the Lord. The law is an expression of the nature of God. It's an expression of his love and expectations for his people. It is what he willed and desired to give to his people. But he saves them by grace. The law was given to his people to guide them in his ways and to show the difference between the holy and the profane, the good and the bad. He gave the law to Israel after he had redeemed them out of the slavery in Egypt. And then that's how they were to live as a redeemed people. After we have been redeemed, from the bondage of sin and death, we are now able to apply and live out and understand the law of God. So let's not relax it. It's been given to us as a gift. Let's not try to be cutting corners. Let's not be misleading one another in how we are to apply that today. He says if you relax it and you lead others astray, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. If you obey it and teach others to do the same, you'll be called the greatest. We'll talk in a moment about what that means. But what, what are some things we need to look at now? It means no commandment of God is to be taken lightly. And if you read your New Testament carefully, it is full of commandments. And so we must take them seriously because they've been given to us. And it's not a question of us picking and choosing and saying, you know, I really, I really dig these commands over here, but over here I'm ready to kind of move them to the side. God is the one who's called us and given us what we are to follow. So rather than relax and mislead, we're to obey and lead. And here's where we see the good news of the gospel. Because 
the law is still to be obeyed. It is still to be followed. But now it is done through the prism of Christ. Today we can apply the word of God to our lives in its intended purposes, in its intended desires, because we are in union with Christ. Who is the one that is talking here? It is Jesus, who is the word of God made flesh. He is the God-man. He's the ultimate expression of the word of God. He is the one who can give its correct interpretation. And so if you want to know what the word means, ask the word. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, obey the law. Teach it to others. If you love me, obey my commandments, and you'll be one of the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? It just means that the, the, the judgment of heaven, that with the, the esteem of heaven will be upon those that are living faithfully here. Oh, look at what they're doing. They're, they're honoring me. They're declaring me. They're leading others to me. They're not misleading others. He says that we're to obey the law and we're to call others to teach and we're to teach others to obey the law. And so we follow the law, but just not in the same way. Now the focus is on Christ. And over the next number of paragraphs, Jesus is going to show how that is lived out in its proper interpretation, its proper understanding, why the law was given and why it all points to Christ as he gives his divine authority. I came across an illustration that I think is helpful in this regard. Pastor Mark Wagner grew up as a missionary kid in the country of Zimbabwe. He says, as a young child, I had an interesting father figure come into my life who taught me about life in God and took time to help me to overcome my fears, one of which was the fear of heights. Over the nearby river, there was a water pipe that stretched out over the valley. The pipe rose to 30 meters above the ground, about 100 feet, at its highest point. And the task that he gave me to overcome my fear of heights was to walk across the 140-meter pipe, about 175 yards, that was interrupted periodically by concrete pillars that were holding it up. He says the first 15 meters were easy. But as the ground below slowly disappeared out of focus, things got more difficult, and I would usually make it to the first pillar and turn around with fear gripping me and go back. Eventually, my friend agreed to go before me a couple of steps ahead, but I was not to touch him or to hold on to him. I was simply to follow him. And so I didn't focus on the pipe. I looked between his shoulders on his back. And I followed him. And I said, make sure you're telling me to go right, to go left. And I made my way across the pipe. Pretty soon I was halfway across and there was no turning back and I made it to the other side. He said, this pipe symbolizes the law. We cannot fulfill the law by focusing on the law and by trying to keep its commandments. But as we follow Jesus and look to him, living in the power of his spirit, following the example that he gave, we can accomplish even far more than what we would think we could because his love and guidance empowers the keeping of the law. I think that captures what Paul was telling the church in Rome in chapter 13, verses 8 and 10. I'm going to read verse 8, then you have verse 10 on the screen. 
Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Verse 10, love does not wrong a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. As we follow Jesus with our eyes fixed on him, who is the ultimate manifestation of love, and he commands us to fulfill the law, he will guide us and empower us to do so. And that brings us then to our final point, which is a greater righteousness. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I see two types of righteousness that Jesus is referring to here. First, he speaks of human righteousness. What does it mean to surpass the scribes and the Pharisees? Was it the promise? Was it the threat? Was it the rebuke? After all, the scribes were the Bible interpreters of the day. They were rigorous and scrupulous in their law keeping. They were the professors and the scholars who taught the law and gave its interpretation. And in their zeal, they saw that every one of their interpretations was equally precious and had to be followed. And so they were rebuked by Jesus because though they were diligent students of the word and their traditions, they missed the kingdom because they missed the spirit and intent of the law going after the, the letter of the law. The Pharisees, for their part, sought to obey God through their own traditions. Their very name means the separated ones who were to avoid anything that was perceived as unclean or sinful. They came from different segments of society and they were the legalists who wanted to earn God's favor by keeping their rules and laws. However, they so emphasized obedience to their understanding of the law that they forgot about the weightier matters of the law like mercy and kindness. They thought they could impose change from the outside in. After the Apostle Paul met the Lord Jesus Christ and was dramatically changed, transformed, passing from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, as he reflected on his own testimony, he said, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And I counted all rubbish. That I may be found in Christ, having a righteousness not of my own, but of a righteousness that comes from Christ. And he knew about the power or lack thereof of man-made rules. For look at what he wrote to the church in Colossae. I've put in brackets man-made rules because that's what he's referring to. These man-made rules have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Real change that leads to eternal life in the kingdom of heaven can never come from the outside in through the efforts of our flesh. They're not of human righteousness. Flesh will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, there must be a divine righteousness. So how is it that we can surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? They had 613 laws. Do we do, we do all of them and then add one or two more just for good measure? Do we work harder than they do? Do we stir ourselves up and really try in our own efforts to please God? Do we have more zeal than they do? Remember Paul, he said, I was 
without parallel in my zeal for the law. The scribes and the Pharisees studied the scriptures and their traditions and tried to earn God's favor through their own efforts. They wanted to play a role in their own salvation. And my friends, beware. That temptation is at the door of every one of our hearts. And we want to have a pound of our own efforts in our own salvation. But in spite of their best efforts, the scribes and the Pharisees missed the mark because they missed the point of the law. One third century rabbi said that Moses gave 365 prohibitions and 248 positive commands. That's where we get our 613 from. 365 negative commands, 248 positive commands. David reduced them to 11 in Psalm 15, which we read during our invocation time. Isaiah made them 6 in Isaiah 33, verses 14 and 15. Micah reduced them further to 3 in 6, 8. Habakkuk reduced them to 1. The just shall live by faith. Now this rabbi was close to the mark. But if his faith was not found in the Lord Jesus Christ, he missed it all. The righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees is not more of a righteousness built on the efforts of human beings, more on the efforts of the flesh. It is a righteousness of a higher order built on the new life in Christ. For the law cannot control sin. It can only expose it. Only the Holy Spirit can control and put to death the sinful deeds of our flesh. To outdo the Pharisees, therefore, is to have a new heart. One that is now for God and for his character. It is a heart that has been born from above, renewed by the power of the Spirit. And true obedience to the law then, which is still required, comes from the heart. It's a radical change that comes from the inside out, not from the outside in. It's a type of change that is described by the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36. I'll read verses 25 and 26, and then verse 27 is already on the screen. But the Lord said, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. This is the language of the new covenant which Jesus brought in with the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, the disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, rooted and grounded in him, are more righteous than the Pharisees because they are birthed into the kingdom of God. They're not trying to earn this reward. They are born into it. And this is an inter internal transformation that is the goal of the gospel, which then will transform the outer behavior. And so, my friends, we do not keep the commandments to earn God's favor. We keep the commandments because we have God's favor. And it is our delight to keep them. The righteousness that is pleasing to God is not external, at least initially. It is a new heart that results in new behavior. It is not earned. It is by grace. It shows that we belong to God because he has now empowered us with a heart willing to obey.
perhaps you didn't notice that phrase at the end of the answer to question one of the Heidelberg Catechism, that we now have a heart that willingly and longingly obeys his commands. This is a divine work. This is not a human work. We must, in the words of John, chapter 3, as Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, and says, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? You scribes and Pharisees, you must be born from above with the gift of the new birth. But that's not something you can operate on yourself. You didn't cause yourself to be born physically. You can't cause yourself to be born spiritually. All you can do is cry out and say, God, have mercy on me, a sin sick sinner. And apply the righteousness of Christ to my life. And plead with him on the merits of Christ to save me. We have, we have no other hope other than the new birth, which then in the words of Ezekiel gives us a heart that desires to obey the law. This will lead into a life that is different. It, it, it's reflected in our behavior. It's a head, heart, and hand transformation where we're now in Christ, we are a new creature. They missed it in Jesus' day. They thought it was external. They thought it was their own rigorous law keeping. And Jesus said, I've come to bring the kingdom of heaven with a righteousness that far surpasses the righteousness of men. So if we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, by faith alone in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, we will continue to obey the law and its intended principles, which is to draw us into a deeper relationship with him and transform us more and more into Christ's likeness. And it's all empowered by grace. So let the aroma of salvation would radiate from us to those that are around us. It's because Jesus is the king of a new kingdom, a new kingdom with a higher righteousness. And it's why we rejoice as we come to the Lord's table and we confess that Jesus is our righteousness. That we eat and we drink with grateful hearts that empowers us to obey. And then Jesus, as we move through this next section, is going to show us what the law means then, how to live it out, because he'll make it clear that the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And transformation begins in the heart with a heart that has been transformed. But in the meantime, as we prepare to look through what, how Jesus will help us to understand the law and how to live it out, what are some lessons that we can apply this week in light of our time in the Word this morning? Because the law and the prophets point to Jesus, he enables us to understand the Scriptures properly. So as you open your word, the word of God in the morning or in the evening or any time, just say, Lord, as the author of this book, help me to understand what I'm reading. That I'll learn more about who you are and what you've done in Christ and how I can grow in holiness. Because Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets, he frees us, empowers us to teach and apply the word to our lives. Because every iota and dot of the word is important, let us grow in our love for the whole counsel of God and be teaching people from beginning to end the scriptures, the whole scripture, so that we see the whole picture throughout the whole gospel to the people of God. Because true obedience begins with the heart, 
The new birth in Christ gives us hearts ready and willing to obey the word of God. If you find your heart growing cold to the word of God, at that precise moment, you need to turn to the Lord and say, I'm sorry. Give me a heart and a hunger for your word. That I would live, as it were, from every word that comes from your mouth. That I would feed off of your word. Because obedience and love for the word radiates out of us because of the new birth in Christ. Let us pray. Father, as we reflect now on who you are, who you've revealed yourself to be in Jesus, and the word that you've given us, we stand in awe that you would be so gracious and merciful to us, having overlooked our ignorance for so long, and then showing mercy and grace that led us to the cross. And now, Father, we want to have hearts not only inflamed for you, but that so love your word that we're daring to commit time to reading it and to sharing what we are learning with others so that they too might know what it is to come and drink from the living waters and eat of the living bread. Father, this week, would you stir in us the righteousness of Christ and grounded in him, would we be confident yet humbled that we're in Christ and serve you gladly as you give us opportunities to represent you this week. And to that end, and for your glory we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand as we close.